Said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Welcome to another edition of the Still Unnamed podcast. Maybe we can talk about that. I'm here today with uh, Neil Strauss sitting at his kitchen table in beautiful Malibu. This is Malibu, isn't this it? This is Malibu. It's still Malibu. It must be North Malibu. <laughs> yes, we were deep in Malibu. We're about to go paddleboarding after this. So. All right. Yeah, very Malibu. Something activity. very healthy. We're going to walk on the water and then change some water into wine after that. It's good for writers to get out of doors and get some <laughs> exactly. color in their faces. <laughs> Pasty white writers. Yeah. Um, for those of you who don't know who Neil Strauss is, uh, he's most famous, I think, for the game, right? The right. super mega huge bestseller that looks like the Bible, interestingly. Yeah. Did all editions? look like the Bible or was that a later thing? Uh, oh no, all the US ones and we actually got it printed where they print Bibles and five places rejected it as sacrilegious oh, at first. Right, right. And, and the fu- funny thing is at Barnes & Noble I was doing a signing there and they said, you know, this is the most second most stolen book in the chain so it's kept behind the, kept behind the counter mo- most Barnes & Nobles. I said, well, what's the number one best-selling book and can you guess what it is? Most stolen book. Yeah, the number yeah. one most stolen book, sorry. Yes. Ah, uh, number one most stolen book. It must have something to do with erectile dysfunction. Or <laughs> it, it's close. It's the Bible. <laughs> so, and, uh, and, and I just, people steal the Bible. Just go to a motel. Right. I thought it was so funny when they must, when they get to the part that says those shall not steal, they must be like, oh shit. <laughs> what did I do? Yeah. What have I done? Oh Lord, forgive me. Wow. Yeah. You steal the Bible. That's a special kind of Christian, right? There. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think people use a lot of people use spirituality as a cloak for a lot of bad behavior in general. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the indulgences you could buy in the, in the middle ages, you know, at the end of your life, if you had enough money, right. You just buy your way right into heaven. I do have a rule that might offend half your audience. If I can Oh, do it. No, Go I don't know. This it. is small. I do find that the people that I trust the least, and this will actually help the other half is I never trust a spiritual person in the material world. Right. Yeah. Deepak Chopra. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't, I haven't read his stuff. Is he very spiritual? He's very proud of how much money he makes. Yeah, you, you know, you're diamond. right. And every time I interview a celebrity, and also I write for Rolling Stone and the New York Times, I've interviewed everybody. Yeah. And as soon as someone gets famous, I interview Lady Gaga. She's like, oh, I was just talking to Deepak Chopra. He seems to just get in there with yeah. famous people. Yeah, exactly. So that's someone I wouldn't trust alone in my house. Right. So never trust Deepak Chopra alone in your house. <laughs> <laughs> if Deepak comes knocking, right. a stolen person, Bibles, yeah. stolen Bibles. A spiritual person in the spiritual world is okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I... I mean, an example of, of something like that that comes to mind. Uh, my first class in grad school in, in uh, psychology was uh, addiction and, and alcoholism and all that. Interesting. And the professor, a couple of interesting things. First day of class, he said, raise your hand if you were raised by uh, at least one of your parents was alcoholic or a dr- drug addict. Right. right. Half the class had their hands up. He said, OK, the rest of you raise your hand if you were raised in a family you would consider to be severely dysfunctional. At that point, everyone in the class except me had their hands up. I was out you of place. You just weren't aware of how dysfunctional your family either was. Either that. I was raised by wolves, by the way. Alcoholic, dysfunctional wolves. Um, no, either either I'm completely unself-aware or um, that explains why I'm not a clinical psychologist. Right. Yeah. Right. Or, or, I mean, so do you, do you think your family was highly functional? 
I don't think they were dysfunctional right. any more than, you know, your average sort of family. I, I love my parents and I like my parents. Right. Right. If they weren't my parents, I'd still hang out with them. They're good people. What would, what would dysfunction be? Would dysfunction be like uh, two parents who are not showing love and taking it to their children? And yeah. Well, I think things? dysfunction can take so many different right. forms. Right. Uh, but I think. Because I'll you, tell you this, I would have raised my, I would not have raised my hand in that class. Right. But now based on like everything I've learned, I think almost every family is dysfunctional on some level. It's like perfection. You can't be perfect. And every sure. family fucks up their kids in some ways sure. that they play out now. And I've kind of come to realize, and I'm curious, I'm going to flip, I'm curious about this about you. I'm not going to flip, flip the whole this interview. This is what happens curious. when you interview an interviewer, yeah, by the way. Yeah, exactly. And bullshit a bullshitter. Yeah. Never do it. But, uh, <laughs> cause you know, everything that I do that I think I just do naturally, I've learned comes from some way in the way I'm raised. Right. Everything I thought was an original thought or original path in life. So different than the way I was raised turns out to be completely programmed by that. So, so for you, I'm just curious, were you, so you, your parents were together. Yeah, they've been married 52 years. Wow. Yeah, just celebrated their anniversary a few weeks ago. Did you have brothers or sisters? One younger sister. One younger sister. You want to do something, want to do an interesting exercise? Sure. And, and by the way, and I'll do this, if, if there's somebody who at some point I'm dating and I think that I may or may not want a relationship with them, uh-huh. I'll actually have them do this exercise to teach them something about themselves, not as a test. Okay. So, and, and, and if you're listening, you can do this too. Uh, am I going to end up in bed with you after this? Is, is that where this, this is, is this going? This is step one of the game. I've agreed to right the paddle boarding, but you know, not paddling That's in general. That's step two. <laughs> step two. I'm step, being gamed, ladies and gentlemen. Step three is, uh, yes. <laughs> that'll, that'll be for your video cast. <laughs> so, uh, so, so and if you're listening, you can draw this too. So what you're going to do is circles are going to represent women, triangles are going to represent guys. Mm. You're going to draw a diagram of your sort of immediate family growing up. So it'd be you, your siblings. And before, I'll tell you how to do the diagram. Right. So it'll just be, you know, you, your siblings, your parents. If there's a grandparent or, a, or someone else who was like a kind of primary caregiver, you'd put them. If there's a dad or stepdad or whatever, you draw them. And what you want to do is draw them in terms of their emotional closeness to each other. So if your mom and dad never talked you draw, you know, the circle and the triangle way far apart right. and label each one right. and then draw where you are on the diagram, where you're closer to your mom or your dad, where your sibling was, and then just diagram that out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, that would be very difficult because the, the schema changed at different parts. Of oh, yeah. Childhood. Sorry. Good, good question. Yeah. I would say go to a default age would be think about like, you know, somewhere in the, like the eight to 12 range. So for you, maybe just say 11 or something. And you have to go back to don't think everyone's family, even dads were really abusive, they age and they mellow and they soften or whatever. So, right, right. so I would, so if you're doing this, go back to that age about how you felt about your family, not how you feel about it now looking back, but how you felt about it, say at age 11 or 12. Right. right. You want me to do that? Yeah. Now? Yeah. Um, I'll narrate. I'm watching you draw. <laughs> uh, and then I guess, yeah, well, that's, that's tough. No, wait a minute. Put this one like here. So, yeah. Right, you need right, to see yeah, that. Yeah. So yeah. So 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 uh, and then so there's a there's a circle up top, which I take it is your mom. Yeah. So mother dominated family. No, no. No. I didn't. Getting away from the mic. You didn't. No. It, it's it's just to represent like my sister and I. I think I I felt close to my dad. I think my sister felt very close to my dad. My mom and my dad were close together, but I think my sister and I both felt more distance to my mom. More distance from your mom. Right. Right. Largely yeah. because, you know, the good cop, bad cop thing. Mom was right. home, dad was at work and Mom was strict. Uh I, yeah, she was more strict than my dad was and, you know, a little more uh, you know, 
let's get things done. It's right. not just having fun. All and the and how, how emotionally close were they? How much do they sort of give you affection, touch, a say lot, I love you a lot? A lot. So yeah. kind of Unconditional love constantly. Right. Yeah. right. Like saying, and you knew that they loved you growing up. They said it, they showed it. It was wonderful. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so three words that described it, going back to 11, three words. And by the way, what's interesting for people who've drawn this is I'll tell you something interesting. I once dated a girl who was, uh, a twin and had her and her sister do it and they both drew their family completely different so you perceive it that may not be how sure, it is sure. um, and what I'll always look is hey do they have a healthy model of a relationship growing up and yours is interesting because again the way you kind of ma- you're you're you know, some people will draw the dad and mom right together. Sometimes they're really, really far apart. You know, they're going to, if they haven't done their work, they're not going to be great in a relationship. Yeah, that's not actually yeah. accurate because I moved my mom up there to get her further away from uh, my sister and but I. She's but kind she's kind of closer to your dad. But she's really close to my dad. Right. Yeah. In fact, I remember, uh, you know, having, you know, I had a lot of conflicts with my mother because right. we're very different. And I remember my dad coming home and, you know, he had to mediate and all that. And I remember him saying to me one time, look, I love you. I love you completely, but I love your mom more. Let's not get any confusion here. I loved your mom before you existed. So, like, you're not going to get in between us. You know what I mean? It, wow. So, there's, it's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean... By the, by the way, I just want to note for our listeners huh? that Neil has, has now taken possession of my notes, and he's seen all the questions I was... Oh, I, I was looking this at This is them, all just a plot to, to, to look at my questions. Exactly. That's amazing. Watch out for this guy. The plot is to not get to them at all. <laughs> so, so, but, but, here, but I mean, first of all... Just, just a sense. Make there might be some, and again, just I we pathologize things and say dysfunctional is patho, you know. But the fact that you're in conflict with your mom, that your dad had to mediate, that the dad says no, your mom's more important. I would. It's interesting because I don't know. I I don't have kids, yeah. but I would I would imagine that a lot of parents feel like maybe the kid is more important. I was reading an article about how yeah. if you had to save one, you'd save the kid. Um, yeah. So so so, but interesting messages. If your dad says I love you, but. I love that person more. So where do you stand? Yeah. I, I mean, looking back on it and, and even at the time I felt like, you know, I'm definitely getting kicked, kicked into what's the word kicked into, I don't know. The, into your, put in your place. Put in my place. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, taking down a peg, I think was the, right. yeah. Um, but I remember being comforted by that at the time because one of the things I was most afraid of was that my parents would get a divorce because a lot right. of my friends' parents were getting were splitting up. And I remember like, you know, having nightmares about right. like having to choose which parent am I going to live with. So, so the cohesion, that sense that, Hey, you're important, but number one is your mom was comforting to me. Right. But how, how, and, and what made you scared that your parents would get a divorce? Uh, well, as I said, largely because of friends, it was just, well, you you know, like any couple, they were going through their, their stuff, you know, and it was the mid seventies and there's, I suspect there might've been some conflict around, um, the configuration of their relationship and so on. Configuration in, yeah. in what way? No, this, I'm getting to something. There's an idea that's brewing in my head and this is fascinating. Well, well, look, I mean, the thing is about my parents. <laughs> wait, uh, wait, don't, don't you're jumping. What configuration? Okay. You, no, but I, I, I am going to draw a line here okay. because my parents are extremely discreet. Right. And, and out of respect for them, okay. I, I got to be discreet as well. Can we talk well. about when we paddleboard? <laughs> <laughs> we can definitely talk about okay. it when we paddleboard. But, here, but here, here's a thought. But wait, okay, go ahead. No, go, go ahead. ahead. 
Well, I was going to get back to the original thing about the grad school. The, oh, no, the forget, story forget from that. Deepak forget Chopra. I don't okay, care about grad school, Deepak gone. Chopra anymore. <laughs> but, but, here's the, but, here, but here's the interesting thing, that a person who really fought as a child to keep their parents' monogamous relationship together is now the person promoting the exact opposite lifestyle. Well, like I wouldn't say I living, fought to do it. You, know? you, hoped, I mean, you had nightmares. I had nightmares about them divorcing. Right. So I didn't care who they were sleeping with. Right. That, that wasn't something I was even thinking about. But I did. I had I had nightmares. You know, I had close friends who went through it at 11, but, but 12. Let's say this. You know. And again, if I, I'm just going to make grand generalizations and you can <laughs> say the truth. As a child, you fought to preserve the status quo. Now, your current book and your next book are about fighting the status quo very passionately. Um, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't agree with that characterization because what I was what I wanted to preserve, you know, you can't say it was the status quo, but it was familial stability. It was, it was, and here, here's another thing that you don't know about my life. We moved a lot as right. a family, right? right? So like by the time we're talking, I was like 11 or 12, I'd lived in six or seven different towns. So the only stability I had was the family, right? right. I didn't like, I was always the new kid in school. I, you know, always, I went to three different high schools, you know, right. and, um, so there's that, but I wasn't, it wasn't about, uh, who they slept with or what kind of sex life they had or whatever. And, and similarly, I think a lot of, um, uh, readers have written to me and this is something Dan Savage and I talk about, you know, a bit of flexibility in a relationship is, I think, likely to, to be a stabilizing effect. Whereas a lot of the people who split up they, over, you know, differences of sexual appetite or sexual you know, energy and they don't have to split up if they find a way to accommodate those differences with some, you know, monogamish, uh, right. you know, uh, or, or just tolerance for what the other person's into at a given moment. I think yeah, those relationships are more stable. If something's really brittle, it breaks. If it bends, it's hard to snap. There it. you go. Yeah, it makes yeah, sense. Yeah. So, and, and last question, then we'll move off it because I feel like, but it's interesting because this is allowing me to get to know you in a way I might not have asked those questions. Right, sure. Just hanging out because we've hung out a few times by yeah. now. Uh, so just three words to describe your mom. Growing up at age 11, just a few words that describe her to you. Uh, stressed, uh -huh. um, loving, and uh, hardworking. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's my phone. <laughs> but we're not going to get it. <laughs> we are in the real world. Um, so, oh, so, yeah. so, yeah, no, it's interesting. I really think, and we'll talk about it more when we paddleboard, but I just think, and I love, I love understanding people. Something I'll do, like if I'm at a table with people and there's something that maybe I, someone I don't like, for example, or just gives me that immediate reaction. You know, whenever you see somebody you don't like, right. you're recognizing a part of yourself you probably don't like. It's right. your shadow. Otherwise, right. you wouldn't have such Early a young, yeah. reaction. So, I'll always like trying to get to know them, understand them, and who they are. And I love, and I feel like these keys do it. And I do feel like that peace with your, with your, with, with that peace with your mom and it's funny you move around a lot now too you're very yeah. homeless and transient yeah that's true uh, that you picked up from there and it's so you know it's so many interesting little you know it's, I, I've thought about that a lot because my sister's the exact opposite my right. sister likes to be in one place she um, becomes involved in local political situation she runs for council she you know she's very integrated into wherever she's living and even as kids when we moved i remember uh we moved to florida northern jacksonville florida and um you know like you listen to me you don't there's no accent there's no regional accent right. no one knows where i'm from whereas my sister wherever we moved she immediately picked up the local accent within two weeks she was right. talking she, like right. the locals yeah. you know and it was i just kept separate from it so we we dealt with it in two very different ways and your sister's younger she's four years younger, four years younger. Yeah. and in yeah. the thing you said she was closer to your mom to my dad to your dad yeah okay yeah, yeah. 
Because there's a lot. Yeah, of my mom was sort of the odd one out in the family, and, right. and I think she suffered from that a lot. Yeah, uh, and she felt it was unfair because she was doing so much work, and yet we were sort of emotionally closer to my dad. And well, it's hard to be around someone who's stressed out and has a lot of anxiety all the, all the time, as yeah. much as you want to connect. And dude, she had me when she was. First of all, my dad and my mom, I think, are the only. People listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and I wish they weren't. <laughs> They're the only, uh, you know, partners either right. one has ever had sexually and right. wow. a mature relationship. Yeah. And uh, they met in college. My mom was in high school. My dad was a freshman in college. They married quickly after and had me. When, I think my mom was 21. My dad was 23. So in 1962. So, I mean, they, you know, they've, my mom was a kid when she had me. You know, by the time they were my age, I was already like out of college. It's right. crazy to think right. about stuff like that. Yeah. Anyway, enough about me. So, so basically, she didn't get a life and it's all your fault. <laughs> <laughs> so, exactly. Well, I hope they're both living vicariously through me a little bit. Yeah. I, I think they, they do, which yeah, is no, they, nice. Yeah, they, they all do at some, at some point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's true. I mean, my parents, when I was trying, when I was writing and really wanted to be a writer, they you know, kind of cut me off because they really wanted me to do something sensible. That oh, really? Oh. Um, and really, I didn't talk to them for an entire summer and had to, you know, pay for everything. And where did you get grow a job. up? I grew up in Chicago, Chicago. But, right. but now they're like, of course, the biggest fans and readers. And, right. that, and that's, that's, and, that, and, and that's okay. Like I, I, even if they have the wrong strategies, I felt like their intentions were the best. There's that's not important. Yeah. A, there's not anger over that. And I'm, pleased for that because it allowed me to just being starving in New York. I slept on like a sheet on the ground. I couldn't even afford a mattress. Really? <laughs> like it's pretty, it's pretty rough. But, but if I didn't do that, I, there's no way I'd be, you know, have written all these books and right. articles. Um, and who knows, maybe I'd be doing something better. <laughs> um, but, uh, but the, la Oh, the last, I had one last, Oh, well, was, uh, were your, was your mom kind of strict? Were there a lot of rules? Yeah. Yeah. No. I, what am I talking about? I mean, you know, compared to my dad, she was strict. Compared right. to what I would have been, she was probably like. What were some of the rules or punishments? Well, it wasn't. It wasn't really so much the the uh, the overbearing rules. It was more that my mom and I had a lot of intellectual conflicts very early on. Right. And. Um, and, and she would freak out sometimes. And, and so when I saw her freak out, I sort of lost respect for her. And then I'd be a snide little asshole and that would make her freak out more. Right. So I learned how to push her buttons pretty early on. Right. Like and you do to the world now. <laughs> you keep working for it. Keep, keep trying, man. The world is my mom and I'm a motherfucker. All right. I admit it. We're done. That's it. Case closed. Thank you thinking, very much for listening to the unnamed Chris Ryan podcast. You. I've been reduced to a pool of. Uh, it's not, we're not reducing you. We're, we're expanding. We're, you. we're building. You're going to break me down and then build me up. I'm in the Marines, Correct. ladies and gentlemen. Uh, what was I going to say? Oh, oh, here it is. The Philip Larkin thing. They fuck you up, your mom and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had, then add some extra just for you. Awesome. And Dustin, you can keep that in. Yeah, uh, so, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, Dustin. so whoever Dustin is. <laughs> so, you know, it's interesting. In uh, for one of my books, I, the dedication was, I'm not going to quote Philip Larkin, I'm going to quote myself, how lame is that? Yeah, but, right. but the dedication was, uh, you know, to your parents, you may be angry at them for everything that's wrong with you, but don't forget to give them credit for what's right with you. Right. So I think we're never trying to stigmatize parents, but just to understand ourselves. And we can't get anywhere until we do understand ourselves, I think. You can't get past. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think the one, 
Again, I'm not a parent. You're not a parent. Right. You know, here are a couple of guys with no kids talking about raising kids. Right. Hey, just a couple, take our advice. A couple of people from dysfunctional homes. <laughs> <laughs> but the the one thing, you know, when I look back on, on my childhood and yeah, everybody makes mistakes. Everybody, you know, whatever makes wrong turns along the way. But they were, my parents were always, as I said earlier, very clear that they loved us no matter what. Right. You know, if I got in trouble for stuff, my dad would always say, look, I love you, but you know, but you I'm really fucked up you with his belt and then burn you with an iron. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, uh, and the other thing was they were real. They were real. They weren't playing some parenting game that they read in a book somewhere. When they were pissed off, you could see they were pissed off, right? Okay, so Mr. and Mrs. Ryan, do not be mad at Chris for this podcast is what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think we should have parental controls on this podcast. Yeah, if my exactly. parents cannot hear it or any of the other ones. The dominatrix I interviewed yesterday, for example. Right. Mom, I don't want you to listen to that one either. What, what did you tell her? Tell, what did I tell her? What she said. What, oh, oh, no, what, just, what, yeah, it was just I, I, I guess, I mean, I, it's silly. I'm 50 years old, but I right. do feel a little like, oh God, my mother's going to listen to this. No, know? I ripped a couple pages out of the game when I gave it to my mother. <laughs> oh, there, really? there were a couple scenes in there. Yeah. <laughs> All right, good. So and, we're together on that one. And, and the other interesting thing, and the other reason is, I mean, I, I was raised with a strict mom. Um, you were uh, Robert Greene who wrote The Art of Seduction and The 48 Laws of Power. Mm. Very similar family background to what we're describing. And I just find that kind of interesting. Yeah. 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 Well, again, I don't know if my mom's that strict or was that strict. It's just that it all fell on her and she was so young that I think she had to. And I was such a little bastard that. Right. Well, it was kind of mother dominated and slightly. I don't know. I don't know if your mom's slightly narcissistic. I'm not sure. But who but, isn't? Yeah. Right. And okay. she was so, beautiful. My mom right. was like, uh, you know, Elizabeth Taylor. Gorgeous. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a yes um, to the narcissist. Not the gorgeous thing, but the, but the lack of a direct response. But Chris didn't say it. Okay. <laughs> so go ahead with your questions. But, that, but hey, by the way, you're a wily fucker, aren't you? Like, I keep feeling like I'm being like, you know, elbowed into a corner somewhere. Like, ah, I got it. It's like fighting Ali. I got to stay out of the corner. Stay out of the corner. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's a quest for understanding. It's a quest for But it's great. I really like it. Don't you, I, don't, I mean, I feel like I understand you and know you. It's intimacy. We're experiencing intimacy. Is right that what it is? That's oh. the first step. I thought that was coming after the podcast. Yeah, that's the physical intimacy. This is just emotional. You may not be used to emotional intimacy because you had very little of it growing up, but this is yes, what it feels like. Yes, that's true because my parents abused me. They were <laughs> so kidding. distant. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, now let me try to get you in okay. a corner. All I'm, right? I'm just here to answer okay. questions. Right. <laughs> You're a counterpuncher, I can see. Um, okay, now, admittedly, I'm not uh, very familiar with your work. The, my, It's interesting that people have been ta- telling me about the game for like, when did it come out? It's like the 1950s. <laughs> no, <laughs> since then, yeah. Jackie yeah. Gleason first yeah. told me about the game. Uh, um, it was maybe like I don't know, five or six years ago. All right, then it was as soon as it came out because I was in Barcelona. I remember the guy; he's a tattoo artist. He's a good friend of mine, and and we were talking about. I guess it was my dissertation at the times before I was even writing the book, maybe or no, maybe it was the book. And in any case, he was like, "Dude, you have to read the game. This is just fantastic." And this is a guy, really cool guy, very smart guy. Um, he had been to prison, gun running in Canada. Clearly a smart guy. Really smart guy, but but like not an educated, particularly educated right. guy. If you're out there listening, you know, props to you. Key man. Stay out of prison. <laughs> yeah, well, he's, he's on the state. He's, he's a tattoo artist making a ton of money. He's right. super successful. He's in Australia now. But anyway, he kept telling me, hey, you got to read this book, man. But the thing about my friend was that he was very much 
he, he was a seeker. He was looking for answers. You know, he was looking for someone who could show him how to live because I think of his upbringing and his father was like a treasure hunter or something right. is this bizarre family situation. And what I knew about the game was that it's essentially about manipulating women to get them into bed. So that turned me off completely. That's the opposite of what I want to think about. Right. So what do you say to people who say, you're full of shit. All you're about is teaching losers how to get laid. And uh, it's not helping the world. It's not helping them because then they don't know how to, you know, manage a relationship afterwards. I like how you couched it as if it's not you saying that. It's not just, me. Just, I mean, just I, someone else. If someone were to say you're a total exactly. asshole, how would you respond to that? And and, and yeah. I guess what I usually find is there's people, two kinds of people, those who've read the book and those who haven't read the book. Right. And those who haven't read the book have a very... Uh, skewed perspective of it, which is okay. Cause it's not yeah. what the book is. And, right. and, uh, I think I gave it to you when you're here the other day, yeah, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, and first of all, the book to me is a story. And I, I read, I read excerpt little pieces of right. it and I really liked at the end, you actually address this at the right. very end. You say, <laughs> Just skip it. you're one of those. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm Just one read of the last page of the book. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So how does it end? And even the beginning, it begins with the guy who's the greatest pickup artist in the world about to commit suicide over a woman. So uh -huh. this is not an advocacy book. Right. And to me, if someone said, Hey, what's the book about? I'd say it's about male insecurity. Right. And, and, and to me, the book was sort of my, it's really my story. It's my journey to sort of like, even though I didn't know it at the time, searching for self-esteem and, and Hey, at that time, still a little bit now, but now at that time it was sort of like, what's the best way to kind of heal my self-esteem if this beautiful woman's willing to be naked in bed with me. She might, I must have something going for me. Now, at this point so, you'd had like half a dozen New York times bestsellers. You know. yeah, let, let me tell you, yeah. At this point, I was able to have a career by having no social life or sex life. Uh -huh. okay. and, and, and believe me, like I, I tried, I did a book with, with Motley Crue. Right. And the whole reason I did the book is I wanted to be backstage at a freaking Motley Crue show. Like I knew I would have sex then. Right. So I would go backstage, I'd grab all the backstage passes and I'd go around kind of giving it to the, to the kind of hot women in the audience. And then they'd say, thank you. And then they'd walk away and I'd be like, well, when's the sex supposed to happen? Right. And literally I went on tour with Motley Crue and did not have sex. So those girls or even were going backstage and, and screwing Motley Crue. Yeah, or just going backstage and most, some right. were, I think half, most of Motley Crue is in relationships at that point. Oh, okay. Like, or, or with really jealous people who would call them right after the show to make sure they weren't having sex with anyone. So just being a, a famous author and, and having all this access to rich and famous people and great Hollywood parties, that wasn't doing it for you? No, man. And I think a lot of people think, hey, if you have, if you're, no, if you're known or if you're, have money or this or that. I did, you know, I, I wasn't, I didn't think I was that known or didn't have a lot of money or anything like that. But, um, no, it's, it's really like a, it's really your behavior more than what you do. You know, some guy who really want to meet, I'm sure every woman listening knows this, that she wants to meet some guy. He's a total douchebag or he's just lame or right. he's boring or he's trying too hard. And all of a sudden he lose interest like that. Right. So I just didn't know it. I didn't get it. I could befriend women, but I couldn't get past that physical point. Like I would, I would all day, you know, all day, all night, I would, I would be waiting for a moment to kiss and then I'd make that mad desperate lunge, <laughs> you know, and I'd get the cheek turn and then the, yeah. the words, there's a, it happens so often there's an acronym for this in that pickup artist community. You just want to be friends? Yeah. Let's just be friends. Yeah. LJBF. Yeah. The let's just be friends speech. Yeah. So I said, get that. And, be, and then they'd start, then a week later they'd be talking about some guy they met at a bar and slept with and how he didn't call him afterward. I'm like, why could you just, I could have, I would have slept with you and I would have called you after I would have hung out with you. I would have been your boyfriend. What, right. what's, what's wrong with me? Right. And so the truth is when people go to the seminars, like these guys are the nice guys right? and they're like, they're getting nowhere. Right. <laughs> so, so, uh, 
so I'm not sure if I answered the question, but for me, it was really, it's really a book about male insecurity. And I feel right. like but, I, wrote, it, I wrote it half for women so they could understand the way men think. Right. Go ahead. Right. Now, you know, this is really unfair because, I mean, I, I, I would prefer to have read the book before talking to you, uh, just as I prefer the people who interview me have read the book before it's, talking I have to like, you. I have like however many books I've written up on that shelf. Like you haven't read. It's cool. There's a lot to read. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but we just met a few days ago right. and, and yeah, I wanted to jump on the opportunity to talk Wait, to you. I have you. a bone to pick with you on your book. Um, um, my book. Okay. <laughs> okay no, but, but here's a, yeah. But what I was going to say. Me. Okay. Hold on. What, okay, what go I was going to say is that this is exactly the dynamic I get in a lot of interviews where people are the the people who are most pissed off about Sex at Dawn are people who haven't read it. Yeah, exactly. You know, because they think they know what it's about and then they read it and they're like, oh shit, well, sorry, that's right. not actually what it is, you know? Yeah. But I mean, what's what about people, the whole concept of think? negging in, in this? I mean, isn't, right. I mean, that's, I mean, isn't that concept, about creating insecurity yeah. and, and, you know, leveraging a woman's insecurity? I mean, again, let's just say it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a journalistic thing. Right. Uh, right. This it, isn't a thing a you developed. That, yeah, you're you're interviewing guys this. who do, do uh, yeah, this. Yeah. Not just interview, but kind of went under their wings and then learned their stuff. Right. Um, and so the concept of negging comes from a guy named Mystery in there. Right. And the idea of the idea of negging, and I, and I really, the idea of ne negging, it's not like insulting someone like, wow, you're ugly <laughs> or something. It's not like, oh, your nose is a little bit. If it weren't for your nose, you'd be really pretty. That's not an egg. To, 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 to me, um, I think that's just an insult. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, it, but what we're what these guys are kind of trying to do is if you meet someone right away and they're then they have a lot of guys always hitting on them you have to sort of actively demonstrate that you're not interested in them right in order for them to start to be interested so, so to me to me um a neg is sort of actively disqualifying yourself as a potential suitor for someone there's no way he'd say that or do that if he's interested in me and you're not doing it just for that woman you want to meet right and there are a lot of gay guys who read the book who also use neg they say negs are so powerful um God, but being but, gay you don't have to jump through all those damn hoops well you know what you, you do, just have to go to the gym you do when you're trying to date out of your league out of your league ah uh, okay yeah when you're trying to get that guy who's really good looking or that girl in the case of the game who's right really, who's really out of your league right um and so uh and so, and it's also, so her friends, uh, who are always seeing her get hit on right away, a guy walks up and they're sort of in protective mode. This helps them feel safe and comfortable with you there. Right. Right. And the truth is you can't walk up and compliment someone. If you walk up to someone, sometimes you can walk with a real sincere compliment. That's really meaningful. You can really do it. Most people at the, they just walk up to a woman and compliment them. Yeah. She just thinks they're hitting on them. Yeah. So to me, you're actually a neg can actually in the end buy yourself the credibility because this happens later in the, in the sort of, right. in the sort of approach to actually pay someone a genuine compliment that they then believe. Right. But you're never, you're never, if you're hurting someone's self-esteem, you're fucking up and doing something wrong. The whole right. point of something is someone's going to have a better experience or interaction because you walked up and talked to them. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. You can donate to the show at feralaudio.com. That's F-E-R-A-L, like a feral dog, audio.com. You can also use the tangentially speaking amazon.com affiliate links for all your Amazon purchases. I get a kickback and it doesn't cost you anything. It just takes a little cut from Amazon's profit margin, which is... Good for the world and good for my Christopher Ryan college fund. I think we're all still paying off our college from the 80s. Uh, check out the other shows on feralaudio.com while you're there, like uh, Conversations with Matt Dwyer and my personal favorite, the Duncan Trussell Family Hour, which is off the hook week after week. You can subscri subscribe on iTunes, leave us a review. Uh, the rankings will always help. 
and uh, stop by uh, sexadon.com and, and check out uh, the book, the interviews, videos, all the, all the stuff I've got up there. All right. Thanks. Back to the show. Uh, what were we talking about? Uh, I don't know. I think you were like... I think you were like attacking me for parts of a book you haven't read. Was that what was going on? I don't remember. <laughs> All right. So you want to get to the bone you want to pick with me? It's just, it's just a very small bone. It's just really one page. Of, uh, oh, okay. Uh, so I think there's a part we're describing like life in a certain century or something like that. Mm. And then you quote like a fiction book to describe life then. Oh, uh, the French Lieutenant's right. woman. Yeah. I just found that. I just, I just, I just found that like to be like, okay, they're all wrong about this. And here I'm going to quote what life was like then. And then choosing a fiction book. Yeah. What, what's a, fi- it's a historical fiction. Yeah, and, I know. And but what I quoted is fiction. true. I love yeah. that book. I mean, it's a great book, but yeah, yeah. Which I haven't read, but I assume it's a great book. Actually, <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'm sure it's a great book. But, but, but when I read that, I'm like, and again, we're like trying to make the argument here and yeah. like this is what life was like yeah but then it was never really said hey this is this is a fiction and book yeah versus you know that, that, i did, that, that, I did that, that twice actually in the huh. book there is that i can think of now there was the french lieutenant's woman and then there was another thing where i was talking about the guy who discovered the clitoris uh and there was a a novel that had been written about that and the right. the, the description in the novel was so good I quoted from the novel. Right, right, right. And at the time I was thinking, yeah, I could really get busted for this. Right. You, you, know? you didn't make any, up any quotes by Bob Dylan in there, did you? Uh, not that I'm going to okay. admit to right now, but if, if it'll get me a gig at the New Yorker, I will. <laughs> right, right, know, exactly. I'd be happy to. Yeah. <laughs> that poor guy. I know. Jeez, he's just gone down in flames. Yeah, and I, and I, yeah, and I feel bad because... From I haven't read that book either, but uh, but some people around here have, and they said it's an awesome book. Yeah, well, he's uh, a great right? Jonathan, uh, um, what's Layman Lair, Lair, Jonah Lair, Jonah Lair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's obviously a very talented writer, but you know, and also, I mean, who doesn't copy and paste? I mean, I I don't know how how you do your research, but when I'm doing research, I get PDFs of all sorts of things I'm reading online, and then I do copy and paste from things, and I make a note. You know, this is from New York Times article, blah blah blah. But I can see how things but, could get in there. But, but apparently, but what, but what I I think I think for he kind of admitted that he just completely made it up. And what I do with yeah. every every book actually is I get it completely fact checked. I'll have, bring someone in. Right. I say I'm going to check every fact. Like treat it like you're an investigative reporter. Oh, really? You hire someone independently, or yeah, your publisher? Yeah, I know. I I'll, no, they don't. They don't. No, they don't do, they shit, don't do, do no, they? they don't do much of anything. Yeah, yeah. Any publisher. Yeah. Um. But yeah, no. I'll I'll pay for them to come in and they'll literally go through and just sort of, you know, I'll have to sit there and show backup. And if I can't find backup, I'll either remove it or change it. So oh, I'll good. I'll put myself to the fire before right. it comes out. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's good. I should probably do that for future books. Yeah, that was my bone. My it was a small little, you know, fish bone. Oh yeah. Well, those are the ones that get caught in your throat. You got to watch out (laughs) for those. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Maybe I should call the podcast interviews with authors whose books I haven't read. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah. That'd be kind of a little wordy. (laughs) Yeah. That'd be kind of funny though. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Have you ever read a book called finite and infinite games? No. What's that? It's a, it's a wonderful little book written by a philosopher who's at NYU, I think. Um, whose name I don't remember right now. Cars, Jonathan uh, Cars, C-A-R-S-E. It, Basically, what he, because you're so famous for the game, you know, it reminded me of that book. What he says is there are two types of games. Like everything in life is a game, and there are two types of games. There are finite games, which are games in which you're trying to win by ending the game. Right. And then there are infinite games where you're not trying to win, you're trying to keep the game going. Right. And I was thinking how the game, as I understand it from outside, from my ignorant, unread perspective, is a finite game in the sense that what you're trying to do is get her into bed. 
But relationships are infinite games in that what you're trying to do is keep it going, you right. know, get it, make it deeper. So they're, they're both games, but they're, they're sort of diametrically opposed in some ways. I interviewed, yeah. I interviewed a woman in San Francisco last week. Her name is uh, Tracy Clark Flory. She mm -hmm. writes about sex for Salon. And, uh, I mentioned that I was going to be seeing you down here and, and she said, Oh, the game. I first heard about that from a guy who used it on me successfully. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this, cause this is, the, this is I, like I, when the, when the game came out and I was just thinking in the, in the, in the break that, uh, that I'm like, why am I, why am I sitting here saying the negs are good or bad? I, I don't, you know, there's some stuff good in there. There's some stuff bad in there. It, it is what it is. And when I, when it came out, I promised myself I'd never be either uh, proselytized for it right. or defensive about it. Right. Uh, you know, it's just, here's the stuff. And in the book, it says what's good about stuff and what's bad about stuff. Right. But I found myself being defensive of one thing. And maybe that's sort of what I sort of react to sometimes, which is the right of guys to learn to be better and more successful with women. Right. And, and because like, and again, I think I'm just my own case study, which is if I had never done that, I couldn't be here speaking eloquently. Right. If I'm speaking eloquently at all, I'm not sure. Uh, I couldn't have my, my radio show like I do. I just wouldn't be that comfortable around people. I couldn't go speaking like I am this weekend. If I hadn't learned all these things, I would just be this like guy turtled in a shell, never coming out of my shell, never poking my head out, never knowing who I am. So I know it worked for me. And also I just mm -hmm. think if I have a kid and believe me, some of the guys who come, come to the seminars are like this, who's 30, 30 years old and a, and a virgin, right. you know, like you're like, God help, please learn how to be better with women. Like I really, right. if I feel like if it's, if it's ethical, if, if you know, no one's hurt, if, if, if it's honest, uh, it shouldn't be sort of culturally shamed for right. someone to get better at dating and better at interacting. That's, and, that's, and, my, that's, that's, my, that's my only little and, soapbox And let's about look it. at the industries around helping women attract more men. Yeah. You know, I mean, from cosmetics to surgery to, you know, you name it. I mean, fashion, it's just all about attracting men and, and having right. some, wielding some power over men yeah. in yeah. that in that market or in that field. Yeah. And, yeah. and now to flip the script, I do understand, though, people's fear of the game because when the, you know, so-called dominant group in a culture gets together to get more dominant or something that's that's a threatening scary thing sure. so i'm em empathic of anyone's sure. thoughts about the book yeah i mean the way i lay i, I mean i would didn't mean to be confrontational but i know no, you were quoting someone else well, which, is, which is an nlp thing it's just quote oh, is they, it? they were like they were like guys in the game and again there are a lot of techniques that i wrote about or saw people do that i wouldn't do yeah that, that they, they would put things in quotes they wouldn't try and talk and get someone turned down but they'll say you know a friend of mine told me this interesting thing he did right and then they'd right. sort of put it in quotes it's an nlp technique that you just i guess did. i'm just a naturally manipulative bastard <laughs> exactly um no no, the reason I said that is because I, I said something on Facebook, my Facebook okay. fan page about uh, like that I was at this party with you and Moby. And I was surprised at the reactions of people that they were really, you know, and, and again, this is like the fan base of Sex at Dawn, a lot right. of which is polyamorous, open relationships, transparency, you know, honesty at all costs kind of right. people. And their reaction was like, that guy is training men how to lie. Right. You know, I'll tell you something interesting. And, I, you know, it's funny that you said that because it's very interesting because, again, I go into a lot of worlds and communities, both for my job, for fun, for life, yeah. whether it's whether it's uh, the intelligence community, the military intelligence community. Contradiction uh, in terms. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Whether it's, uh, you know, odd undergrounds. But I have found that, let's just say, the, the sexual underground or alternative cultures have actually been where I've gotten the most, uh, let's just say, preconceived notions or yeah. some it's the only place where I've had interviews where some people just won't do those interviews. And I feel like, again, we we're talking earlier in the show about the shadow, right? That there's something they're seeing that they're reflecting something back. There's something there. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
and, and I don't know exactly what that is. Maybe you can tell me, but that's the place where, again, you'd think to be embraced or sort of opening up yeah. a world here yeah. uh, where, where, uh, where some people have more kind of weird, odd fears there. Yeah. I mean, I, I, my first sense is that it probably, because anything around sexuality is hard one gain, you know, like coming out of the closet, whatever your closet happens to be, that's tough. You know, you're fighting every inch of that. Right. So anything that you perceive as a threat or something that threatens to sort of, you know, re reconfigure the, the field freaks people out really quickly, whether yeah. wherever they are in, in the spectrum, you know, political. That is what whatever. it is. Cause they, I mean, the truth is this, the, the creepiest shit I've ever seen has been from some of the sexual sub communities. And, and, and again, it's not everybody. It's a small crew of people and it's no, by the way, it's no one you and I have talked about, but there's a small crew of people who are really, really manipulative in terms of setting right. themselves up as a guru and a Godhead. And exactly. that, and that my yeah. cock can heal you right. of your, all your things. And, you know, and there's some people, there's some, uh, as far as I've seen, the most disgusting things happening yeah. have been in this sort of new age sexuality and there's some great things happening and I don't want to discredit those, but there's some sure. people in there who are power and sex mad, who hurt, leave a lot of, uh, hurt people in their wake. Yeah. I mean, it's what you said earlier about as someone who presents themselves as spiritual in a material world. It's right. like, wait a minute, dude, if you're spiritual, be spiritual, show it, leave the girls alone you <laughs> right, know? Right, exactly. or, or be very upfront about how sexuality fits into your spirituality, right. you know, which don't say my cock's going to cure you when it enters you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> which, which there's one guy who, who, who literally does that <laughs> or a few guys, you know, that reminds me of the belief in South Africa that if you have AIDS and you have sex with a virgin, it'll cure your AIDS. No. Yeah. It's that's one of the most up. horrible misconceptions. Yeah. Okay. So finite and infinite games. You ever read the unbearable lightness of being? Yeah. Milan Kundera is one of my favorite. Writers. Yeah. What yeah. a great book. Yeah. Huh? I love that. And have you ever read life is elsewhere. Yeah, sure. Awesome. Yeah. I always think about that. I always think about that in terms of there was a guy born to be say a great poet. What happens is his mother and family issues and the politics and social pressure at the time lead him astray and he becomes a total hack. Yeah. And I always think about that in terms of my life or anyone else's life. It's like, are you going to stay your true path? Or are you going to be led astray for, you know, acceptance or to act out some wound? Yeah. So is, you know, I often, when I meet highly successful people or, or people who have a lot of money or a lot of power or a lot of anything, um, I'm struck by how a lot of the drive is related to some inner wound or whatever. Right. right. And as you were just talking earlier about, you know, you're your saying, wounds. No, <laughs> yeah, my, <laughs> all the wounds my mother left in me psyche. Uh, no, you were talking about, uh, and your dad's mixed messages. <laughs> what? what? <laughs> <laughs> sorry, dad. I'm sorry. I didn't know it was going to go this way. Uh, uh, what the hell was I talking? About? Oh, you're, you're, you know, feeling that you could speak eloquently, you can speak in public and all this kind of stuff. It, if I understood you correctly, you're saying that a lot of this self-confidence came about when you were researching the game. Yeah, so we're talking five, six years right. ago. In fact, if you look up, I think there's online a Charlie Rose appearance that I did when I was writing for the New York Times. Uh -huh. And I just watched it. And it's just so embarrassing. Like, I just see that guy and like, he just can't get a word of edgewise and he's not. Charlie can't? Up. No, me, me. Sorry. Oh, I was on the, I was he's, on the, just, he's overwhelming. That no, guy. it wasn't. He, yeah. But with this one, if I look at myself then, I look at myself now, it's a completely different person. Oh, uh, okay. Because you yeah. were just dominated by Charlie Rose. Or, and then there were three other guests on the show at the same time. Oh, okay. And I right. just really, I just, I just didn't make a good showing yeah. for myself. You know, but I, I'm the same way. I mean, I, I never have trouble talking, but I, I don't like fighting to get a, a, a word right. in. It's like, if they need that 
if they need to be heard more than I do, let them let them talk. And if he wants to hear me, he'll he'll talk to me. I've got a friend who's talking about dysfunctional parenting. His mother um, always says to him, honey, why can't you be more like Charlie Rose? <laughs> oh, my God, that's funny. <laughs> what would Charlie Rose do? But but the thing is, when you do speak and this is me, when I speak on the sh- that show, I'm not. I mean, I think just it's a good place to compare the difference. Yeah. When you speak, you're, you're very learned. You're very eloquent. You're very articulate. You're very smart. I mean, all those intellectual debates with your mother have really paid off. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. I, you know, I, I feel one, th- one thing that brings a tear to my eye right. is my mother always used to, when she got really upset, she would say, you kids, I don't know what I did to deserve such bad kids. You treat me like the salt of the earth. She, see, see, she got it backwards. Yeah. Well, no, yeah, I'll tell, well, I'll tell you something. I'll tell you, that's funny. That's, yeah. <laughs> that, that's, and the, I'll tell you something else, which is that a lot of people, myself included, who, who, uh, like functional, functional parenting, and this is not about your mom at all, of course, if she's listening, uh, is, is really about you're taking care of your kids' needs and your kids' emotions. When the kid has to start taking care of your emotions is when yeah. it becomes destructive. And I have right. found, right. and again, I'm, I'm not trying to pathologize or stigmatize any kinds of relationships because we are what we are. There are many kinds of relations. But I do find that one commonality amongst people who don't fit well with monogamy um, is, is sometimes there's a point where they were really always taking care of their parents' needs. Mm. And so a relationship can feel, again, psychologically at a subconscious level, smothering. Again. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, that could definitely be. You know, one of the things I, I, I thought a lot about when I was writing Sex at Dawn that relates to, to what we're talking about here is how, uh, how important and yet unexamined is the period in adolescence or that extends long beyond adolescence for some of the people you were mentioning earlier of sexual frustration for yeah. men. Yeah. Boys, you know, we become sexual beings where 12, 13, 14, right? And it's turbocharged. It's, you can't think about anything else for years. You're getting hard ons, you know, walking by mannequins in a store window. And yet that's, you know, sexual satisfaction is something that's completely not possible for most yeah. and kids. It's funny. Age. I have a whole theory about that. Yeah. Which, well, which so I do I. Let, yeah. Let's, well, let's hear it. It's the same theory. It probably yeah, is. I, think, I mean, yeah, it's, I, it's, it's like, you know, kids, it's like people who are starving when they're kids, you know, right. they become obese later, you know, yeah. they compensating. Yeah, yeah. You know? And my theory, and my theory is that naturals, guys who are naturally good with women, mm. lost their virginity at a young age, you know, right. 10 to 14. Uh, and guys, because, and guys who are uncomfortable around women uh, and it ends up being a lot of my students, let's right, say, right. and I ask them in seminars, loss of virginity at a later age generally, because sure. what happens exactly like you said is you go through with this desire for sex and this wanting this thing so bad and women have this key that will unlock you from this prison of virginity as a male that you're in and to go through life for five, six years with all that desire, not able to, you just sort of get this, it's right. this awkwardness. Five, six women. really important, very formative years. Yeah. And I think for a lot of guys, that frustration curdles into a form of hatred and misogyny. Right. You know, I yeah. think if, if you really dug into a lot of rapist heads, there would be a lot of, you know, hatred. Who do they hate? You know, who do, who do the, you know, a lot of these like, psychopaths who kill uh you know kill prostitutes 
You know, it's it's very much related to them being sexual women. You know, also the fact that uh, they can get away with it, probably. You know, the, right. uh, yeah, but there's probably some hatred. That, I mean, I, I think that's true. What we fear, we hate. It's funny to even say this. You got to read the. You got to read the book, by the way. I'm going to read Cause, that cause, damn thing. Because I would I say only five percent of it or less is tactical. Most of it's just all my thoughts on this stuff. Right. But uh, right. but I but I do agree that I do feel like um. You know what we fear, we hate, and by understanding the opposite sex, which is, I think a lot of what the game is about, yeah. by understanding the opposite sex, we start to understand them and not fear them, and that right. gets and that gets rid of that. And I that's totally one of the things I was trying to do in Sex at Dawn is show that the war between the sexes is this. I think the phrase I used in the book was "it's a false flag operation." You know, right. we're set against each other like a dogfight. Where we're the you know we're in this together actually. You yeah. know, and there's no reason for men and women to be in conflict. It's yeah. that sexuality's be, been turned into another commodity that people you know the powers that be have learned how to you know withhold from us and then charge us for in well, some ways i, I, I want to say now that i picked a bone with one small page i want to give pay you uh tell you something i did based on your book what's that um i did an experiment where i tried to put a sort of pod together of people living as a group in cooperation with no possession or ownership oh. of, of each other at the, at the, in this very house <laughs> and i brought together and i kind of explained the idea uh-huh. Um, and brought together 12 or 13 people that would live in a place where we're all growing together. Wow. We have kind of love and compassion for each other. Um, and there's no sort of, uh, um, you know, sort of trying to create an alternative, you know, relationship that's true to ourselves as a, as, as a sort of tribal group. Um, and uh, what happened was uh, one guy tried to kill me. <laughs> one guy literally tried, he was literally going to kill me. Like he, he, he said, I think he the girl he was I guess two of the people one person said I really want to bring in this guy with it would be really great for him the guy I used to be with and I think he got really jealous of her connection to me and so that so basically kind of what happened though very interesting so it was about I think it was 12 or 13 people at first and there were just a few elements that just weren't really working that were creating sure. a lot of friction the murderous guy um, <laughs> that'll, that'll screw up any tribe yeah. uh, I think there was sort of a Girl with a really, really a lot of kind of trauma and a lot of drugs. And we really worked together on psychology. We got to know each other, not just sort of sexually, but also uh, on an intimate level and worked on a lot of childhood stuff and things like that. I brought in really cool people to train them in nonviolent communication and things right, like that. Right. Um, and, uh, and somatic experiencing, which is sort of releasing your trauma through your feelings and sensations. And, uh, and we kind of boiled down to eight people um, so, and, and at that point, it was the last day, it was the last day, and we all actually decided to stay a little bit longer. It really worked. How many days nice was way. it? It was, um, it was about like a, a little, it was a, a, a bit over a week. Sounds like a reality show. It kind of should have been a reality show. Yeah. It should have been. But I, what I wanted to say, I wanted because I've really been kind of questioning, I was really kind of questioning, like, what, what is the natural relationship mm. style for me? Right, you know, like uh, like Reed Mahalko, who you had on the show, where you're friends with. I, I know him. Yeah, yeah, you know, his I like that date your own species thing, right. and, and and it's hard to tell what species you are. Yeah, um, and I'm sure a lot of people listening have gone through your sort of, you know, coming out feeling is is saying, okay, for so long culture has told me to be like this, yeah, but I'm kind of feeling this, and everyone's kind of shaming it and stigmatizing and telling me it's wrong. Yeah. But who am I, and what's right for me? Yeah, yeah, and even thinking in terms of what's natural uh, are so dif- is so difficult, you know. Yeah. As we say in the book, it's you know, it's like asking what's the natural state of H two O. Yeah, you know, it can change. What's and, the temperature? And, what's and, the and, and that's the thing. The therapy 
community and I'm really sick to that. This is going to be like a fucking 10 hour podcast. Yeah, I can talk exactly. about this stuff with you all day. Yeah. And yeah. now we're getting to like the heart of, of, of you know, of, of some of the stuff we talked about. We can cut out earlier. that earlier stuff about my family. <laughs> You're probably going to leave it in. <laughs> Dustin. Dustin. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, so that the therapy community uh, traditional ther- therapeutic community, not people like Kathy Labriola and people like that who are, mm. you know, more kind of tapped into this stuff will really tell you if you are desiring anyone outside your primary partner, you know, you are dealing with a family wound, right? you right. know, and, and part of my, let's just say quest really has been recently to, uh, say, okay, what is the authentic me? And that's why your book really kind of came in handy. What is the authentic me who I really am? And then what is the wounded me? Because I want to live in my, my authentic life. That's why I've kind of done these explorations into your family and things like that. Right, right. That's important stuff. I mean, and, and also, you, you know, we are, I often think when I talk to people who say, look, I'm monogamous, you know, I just am. And people, as I said, there's a a sort of a reflection of some of the interviews I do where, um, you know, I'm the one who's saying, hey, the book's not prescriptive. It's just it's just describing things and you take the tools, do what you want with them. I I hope you'll use them for good, you know. Um, But, uh, you know, I often think at the beginning of the book, I I talk about uh, how people how, how what we consider the natural things to eat is so arbitrary and culturally defined. Oh, it's ridiculous because now they're saying soy is bad. Like after all this time saying soy is good, now soy is bad. Well, I don't right. know if you've seen, like there's a lot of activity around farming insects now, right. you know, as it becomes clear that cattle are producing all this methane and causing problems with greenhouse gases and all that. Um, anyway, so so I often think like, yeah, I'm, I'm very susceptible. I wish I weren't. I wish I was one of the like Anthony Bourdain who can just, you know, go eat a warthog's asshole and not think about it. Right. I cannot do that. I'd have to be starving. I mean, even raw oysters. You saw me the other night with sushi. I, right. I don't like sushi. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to be the guy who happily kills and cooks up a rat somewhere. You know, I wish I were because right. I know it's purely arbitrary. See that book right there on my shelf, Emergency? That's what that was all about. I was that guy and I learned how to do all that stuff. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, like survivalist stuff? Yeah, yeah. I learned how to yeah. sort of, I was just sort of some, you know, person raised in a, in a high rise in a city with no right. knowledge of that stuff. And I learned how to do, how to go off in the woods with nothing but a shirt on my knife. And I mean, a shirt on my knife, a shirt on my, I sound like your mom now. I have nothing but a shirt on my back and a uh, knife at my, you know, and a knife and survive on my own for as long as I want. Cause I got uh, worried about, especially in the, in the bush years, you know, <laughs> where, where this country was going. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's probably it's why you're in Spain. Why, why'd you, why uh, were you in Spain? What brought you to Spain? Well, you know, when Reagan basically was elected, I started right. planning my escape. Yeah. Um, and I was in college then. And, uh, I, yeah, I, you know, I've never really felt comfortable in American society. The, the values of American society and my values have never aligned, right. you know, since I was a little kid. My first, and still probably deepest intellectual passion was studying Native American uh, cultures. And I, I was like super into living in the woods and how, you know, how to eat, you know, what was edible and what wasn't and how to make snares to catch but rabbits. Way, and, cool. You know, I was living in suburban Pittsburgh, but right. I had like rabbit skins tanning in the backyard and a wigwam that I'd made out. You know, I right. like, took the bark off the trees and, you know, mm-hmm. I, I made my own moccasins and stuff. A redheaded, pale right. like, Indian <laughs> yeah. kid sneaking around. I, yeah, okay. Here's the truth. You know, you know what's crazy though? Yeah. A lot of these things are illegal. It's illegal to set small sna- to set your own snares for animals. A right. lot of country, a lot of cities, it's illegal to actually capture rainwater. It's, it's insane. illegal to dry your clothes on the line, right? In a lot of places. Yeah. Can you imagine that? 
Yeah. I mean, I used to come home from school. Here, here's an embarrassing uh, confession. I used to come home from school and this is up till this is like from eight to 14. I would come home from school, take off all my clothes and put on a loincloth <laughs> that was made out of a my, we had pink and purple bath towels. I'd fold it into thirds, put it and put a belt around and that I would wear that like no way till I went to school the next morning. That's all I wore. Bearish. You know. Right. Little Christopher. Yeah. Not so little right. too. I mean, I remember <laughs> I was like, you 14. were 18. Yeah. <laughs> I was 14. I wow. remember. And I was upstairs reading, you know, reading, uh, bury my heart at wounded knee or one of these yeah. books I read obsessively. And, um, you know, still when I read, I sort of get into an altered state as a lot of us do and, uh, or write, you know, and, um, Anyway, I was, I was sort of tripping out in this book and I went downstairs to, to get some, some water or something. And my parents were having a bridge party. That's it. Your mom had said, stop talking That's about it. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I walked through this living room full of people playing bridge, my parents' friends and heard the whole conversation, everything go silent. And it wasn't until that moment that I realized I was wearing my loincloth walking through, you know, <laughs> that's hilarious. What, 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 what do you think? What do you think you were searching for, like on a deeper level? Like, what do you think you were looking for, searching for? What did you need? You were missing something that you wanted to feel connected to. I, f I felt and still feel. I mean, and, and, you know, if, if anyone ever wants to make a movie of my life or something, uh, it'll, it'll be pornographic, of course. But the interesting part would be there's this big cycle, you know, that I felt out of place. I felt born in the wrong place and time. Right. And that this sort of American Indian consciousness that I was reading about and thinking about all the time, you know, not to be reductive, of course, there are many different cultures and different kinds of consciousness, but all sort of an animist embedded in nature, um, not interested in material wealth so much as a, a more spiritual, uh, you know, psychological relationship with the world. All those sorts of things were much more in alignment with what I felt in my deepest being. Right. And so, you know, that's why I left the States. You asked why I ended up in Spain. I mean, that's a very long story. I got robbed, actually, is why I was in Spain. I, I was in Spain on my way to Burma, and I got robbed my first night in Barcelona and ended up wow. living there for 20 years. Wow. That's great. That changed your whole life. It did, yeah. And for the better, in the end. For the better. I, I've been robbed uh, twice uh, successfully in my life, and both of those occasions made life much better for me. Wow. Yeah. Someone hopes you get mugged in LA. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah, all you thieves out there, yeah, go get my laptop. So do you, do, uh, I mean, so maybe there was a need for like connection because you're moving around a lot. You're rootless, but Hey, here are these, some people who are rootless, but connected and maybe you needed that connection. Yeah. could be that, you know, or could be, have you ever heard of Ian Stevenson and his work on reincarnation? No. Very interesting guy. He's a psychiatrist. If he's still alive, he's quite old. He's teaching at uh, University of Virginia Medical School. Um, very distinguished professor of medicine there. But his side interest is reincarnation. And for 30, 40 years, he's been working uh, with grad students in India, Lebanon, Brazil, and the U.S. on cases of uh, reincarnation where little kids, three, four, five years old, talk about their previous life. You know, I had brothers, I had sisters, I lived here, I did this, my mother was like this, whatever. And 
especially in, in Brazil, Lebanon, and, and India, where people are more accepting of this sort of thing, they find lots of cases where they, they get all the details from the kid. What kind of, what was the town? Was there a river? Was there a bridge? How did you die? All these information. And they've managed in dozens of cases to match it up with the person who died. They go back, they find the family. Like, yeah, that's right. He died. He was riding his bike to the brick factory. The truck hit him. And often the, a birthmark appears at the point of the, the, the fatal injury. There's and a lot of the people who seem to have been reincarnated died violent deaths. They died young. They didn't die naturally. Right. So it's a very interesting. interesting. And there's yeah. a, a, his, Stevenson's own books are very difficult to read because they're extremely dry, you know, graphs, factual kind of, because he's afraid of being labeled a, a flake, obviously, or maybe that's just his writing style. But there's a book called Old Souls, where a journalist went and interviewed him uh, from the Philadelphia Inquirer, I think it was, and uh, and was so fascinated by this that he said, "Damn, I guess we got to write a book about this." So he wrote a book for the mass audience. Very wow. interesting. I'll check that out. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, when I was a kid, I thought hey, maybe I'm reincarnated. Yeah. You know, maybe yeah. I'm an American Indian, and boom, I popped up in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, right. by some fluke. Which is, I mean, it ties into your writing, which is so anthropological and yeah, missionary. Yeah, I mean, and I love that. Supporting I love... a tribal sort of... You know. Yeah, and looking at things from multiple perspectives, you know, right. don't get stuck in your own, you know, your your personal perspective. Try to look at things from other perspectives, yeah. What, yeah. what do you think, and I know you mentioned in your book, what, what do you think of, uh, like, Helen Fisher's evolution of, is it lo evolution of love or desire? Uh, the, uh, anatomy of love. Anatomy of love, yeah. Um, I have a funny thing with Helen Fisher. I, I, I've read most of her books and, um, initially I, I found them very interesting. Um, and also Robert Wright, who wrote The Moral Animal. Right. Interesting book. Um, I feel like Helen Fisher sort of took a half step and, and then pulled back. Um, you know, I, I talked about her work quite a bit in Sex at Dawn because she sort of, her, her idea was that, the bonding that happens, the, the pair bonding, uh, that a lot of scientists claim to be essential to human mating and integral to human mating is something that's only designed to last, uh, for the first four or five years when the, the kid's really vulnerable and can't keep up with the group, need someone to carry him and all that. Right. Um, but you know, I, I think she doesn't take the full step into understanding that the nature of the group consciousness, the nature of group integration in hunter-gatherer societies, where it's not always the mother who carries the kid or, and the biological father is not necessarily even an important actor in all this, that, you know, everybody's related. Everybody cares about one another. Right. You know, I think interestingly, a lot of my problem with a lot of the, the sort of, um, strict, uh, evolutionary, you know, genetic arguments is that they completely discount the nature and value of love. They think love is about who you're related to. And they don't understand how deeply we can love people we're completely not related to and how how arbitrary it is, you know, like you don't choose the, your family, right. you know, and maybe you love them. Maybe you don't. Maybe, you, you know, whatever. But you do choose your friends. And on many levels, the love you feel for a friend 
is greater than the love you might feel for a brother or a sister or a cousin or whomever, because it's it's not obligatory. You're choosing to love that person, right. you know? I wonder if there should just be different words for it, because I'm just thinking, like, it's very complicated. I know people who hate their father, say, let's say, their father's an alcoholic who was abusive, and, and they hated their father, but when their father died, they felt so much pain and they changed and they actually started drinking they'd never drank in before and this person had no connection to their father and, and it's odd that maybe I feel like there should be like two different words for that family yeah. blood thing and then for that that thing we get with people it's almost a different thing and you know it, it, there's that there's the whole question about love and how we define it and what you know whether it's related to genetics or not I think a lot of, of the problem with seeing prehistory clearly is that people are so afraid of anything that 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 reeks of communism, of right. group ownership, because we live in this historical yeah, moment it's like where fifties holdover or something. Yeah, it's like, hey, well, you know, Karl Marx was an idiot. We saw what happened with Russia. Well, that has nothing to do it's, with yeah, Karl it's weird. Marx. Things get shamed out of our culture. In fact, I was reading some old book and it was on like eugenics press or oh, something like that. Yeah, yeah, sure. And here we are in this, you know, triumphant uh, moment where communism has been vanquished, and so any any uh, hint that there's that group ownership could have beneficial uh, aspects is is ridiculous. Yeah. According to the powers that be, Steven Pinker and people like that. Yeah, it's not, and one day probably democracy will be the some shamed right. thing. Right, yeah. Um, I, did, I, I did one of the, as long as we're talking, I did have one other like, little bone, one thing that... Oh, another fish with, bone. Another small fish bone, but I did feel like you were too harsh on predecessors if you didn't agree with one of their points. Yeah. Did like, you read the hardback or the paperback? The hardback. Because in the paperback, there's a, a extended interview conversation I had with Dan Savage uh -huh. that they added into the paperback right. edition. And one of his questions to me was, would you, what would you change if you were writing the book now? Right. And that's what I said. I would have like been a lot less snarky and dismissive. Right. It was like, Darwin's an idiot. I would like to take a knife and <laughs> plunge it into his heart and pull out and rip out his entrails and say, you are a fucking loser. No, you do not understand no. sex. I, no, no, it wasn't I like was that. Cool with Darwin. No, no, I, I no, respect I know. Darwin. No, but, but, but even Darwin, sometimes it was like, sometimes it was, uh, there were, sometimes there was like, uh, it was just sort of a tonal thing that I felt. Some, and that was my only thing. Yeah, no, I agree yeah, with you. I agree. Yeah. I, I read it now and I'm like, dude, what? come on, you know, calm down a right. little bit. And, and I want to be like that with every book I write. I, I want to feel like, oh, I messed that up. I can do it better. When I read a book, I'm like, oh my God, that was so much better than the most, re you know, yeah. that's so much better than what I'm doing now. That's right. my fear. I want right. to learn from each book. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, the, the problem with that tonal thing is you don't, I, I've seen in your writing as well, just last night, looking through the book, every page was the, it dances, there's movement right. there, you know, it draws you in from the, from the tone, you know, you're telling an exciting story and you're aware of that, you know, it comes right. through in your voice and the danger of that, of course, is that you can go overboard sometimes and, you know, you're trying to be funny and you end up coming across like an asshole or right. you know, I'm speaking for myself, not not you. Um, but, uh, you know, so I, I would like to tone that down a little bit in future books without draining any of the vitality and the life out of it. Yeah. Interesting. It's, it's interesting to hear you. It's interesting. I, 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 I see that now. I see that now that what it was 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 sort of being like, this isn't going to be dry, like you were saying about that other uh, that person's reincarnation books like this is going to have life it's going to be colloquial we're going to pull examples from recent culture right. and things like that right. but the one thing I'll never do in a book is I actually will try to never make references to transient culture because I just want my book in 20 years for someone to understand it and not have a footnote like this is who Matthew McConaughey was or whatever like right. I don't want to mention Matthew McConaughey I want to, I always yeah. think like I wanted those to be you know always, but I do feel like most, most examples you pulled colloquially were like kind of common things but I see now with the goal, I see I get that now that it was to be colloquial to 
to still be smart, still be erudite, to still be scholarly, but at the same time to to uh, to speak like the language of people who wouldn't read those other books. Yeah, my father, who who um, taught literature and and was a professional writer for a long time, he always said to me, you know, if you're when you're writing, try to write like you're sitting at the bar with some friends telling a story about something you really care about. So you know, when I write, I get shit face first. No, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> That's awesome. I was going to be impressed. <laughs> no, just joking. Uh, but yeah, I thought about that with, with the references to current. You know, and I think one of the things, one of the difficulties that came about because of that is translations are difficult. You know, the Japanese, like what, what the hell are they going to say? The Flintstones. I don't even know if they have right, Flintstones right, in right, Japan. Right. Um, but, you know, but the other thing I thought about was, uh, I had this whole conversation with, with my editor about it because he was saying, look, you got to remove all that because right. of what you're saying. It'll I like date the Flintstones the concept, the whole, that's a really good, the Flintstoneization. Flintstoneization, yeah. That, that's a great, uh, I mean, that was a sticky concept for me. Yeah. yeah. Oh, by the way, my editor is named Ben Lone and he edited that book, The Sticky and Unsticky Ideas or whatever oh, it's called. Oh, that's funny, that yeah. Malcolm Gladwell? Is no, that, oh, it no, a different thing. no, it was, it was a Stanford professor okay. that he had worked with and he convinced the guy to write a book. And that was Ben's first, Ben took that book oh, to a publisher and that's how he got into yeah. publishing. And I think Gladwell then wrote about it. Um, but, um, but what I said to Ben was, look, you know, I, I think physical books are on the way out. It's, it's going to be all ebooks very soon. And so those things can be changed in the future. Right. You know, so I'm starting to see books now is like uh, a Living work in progress. Organisms. Yeah. You know, so, okay, if Matthew McConaughey is, is out of the picture, you know, you can always go back and insert somebody else in there with a few clicks of a mouse. And, right. Right. Yeah. What do you think about that self-publishing? Have you considered going down that road? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I really think a lot about where things are going because I think... Hey, evolutionarily as well as in life. And I see if you stick to a strategy that worked for you, uh, at some point it stops working and you got to accept the changes. I'm really trying to figure those things out. And you've got a massive platform and you could yeah. market directly. Right. Uh, who's the guy who does that? The, the famous guy. Seth Godin. Yeah. Seth yeah. Godin. Right. But I think he went, I'm not sure. Uh, but yeah, but I think, cause I've thought about that. Hey, um, but I think the goal is um, you want to reach the people who aren't already reading you. Right. And still 50% of the books are still sold and hard physical copies. Um, so I think the reasons for me to stay with the public for me are a, there's the credibility that is just that social proof idea that someone else believes in your, your voice. Right. I mean, I like my editor there and I like being edited. Um, uh, I mean, they do that more. I just feel like, and then also when it just, I mean, if you self published your book, we wouldn't, you know, we, we wouldn't be sitting here with a podcast and a New York times bestseller and, and people sending you nude photos of them posing with your book. <laughs> <laughs> Not the first one. Yeah. Right. Maybe, maybe the next one. Right. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah. no, I like for, for now, I, I think I always, but the, in the end, my conclusion is if you're the creator of the content, uh, that's people are always going to want to read books. Maybe their attention spans for them are smaller. People yeah. are always going to want to watch filmed dinner, you know, filmed entertainment. People are always going to want to listen to great audio and whether it's a podcast or a radio show or, you know, live theater or something, whatever it is, if you're just the creative content thing, the medium, you know, Marshall McLuhan says the medium is the message, but now I'm not so sure anymore. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah, you do. You do have to f shape your message to the medium, though. Right. You know, like we can have a thing going on here that in print wouldn't necessarily work or right. wouldn't and even come across. So I think the danger of the Kindle is it's so glutted. Like yeah. you and I could just, uh, you know, someone could just transcribe this thing, put it on the book and say, 
Christopher Ryan and Neil Strauss in conversation, people would search for your books and then they'd find this like cheap transcript, which it's not a know, bad idea. Huh? Don't do it. <laughs> no, because I've been really careful, you know, because you really want to be careful that every book you do is, yeah. is an event, but, but there are other people who think differently. They just vomit things out on yeah. Kindle all the time. So yeah. it's interesting. I mean, it's boring to everyone else, but you and I should sit and talk about it because I'm fast. I mean, I love books. My goal, like in when I was 11 years old, I wrote a book send it to a bunch of agents and publishers trying to get it published and no one responded to me but it got me used to many years of rejection kind of like my virginity like it got me used to many many years before <laughs> I finally you know got consummation of a book being published <laughs> right right so okay final final question yeah. I mean we can we can talk as long as you want but I know you've got things to do um, you 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 know you you've been incredibly successful in the road you've gone down you've you've had six New York Times bestsellers, is that right? Seven, seven New York Times bestsellers, with one more on the way, at least uh, in the oven. And uh, but if you couldn't do this, what what would you have done otherwise? What would you, you know? For me, it's a musician. I would love to have been a musician. Right. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that's funny. You know what? I I mean, outside of the books, I mean, I was always like a. If it wasn't writing, because I always wrote, I wrote probably like two thousand or more articles for the New York Times. Really? Uh, yeah, wow. and for and tons uh, feature for articles, or were you on a beat? Or uh, yeah, I was writing about music. Actually, I would have wow. been reviewing your giving the Savage review. No, I would have been <laughs> reviewing your band. I like, I would review. So I was yeah, music writer, reporter, right. critic. Yeah. Uh, so, if it, but if it was it wasn't writing, it's funny. I was actually always wanted to be like a engineer, producer of music. So I'd be on the road with you doing the sound. Daniel Lanois. Yeah. Daniel yeah. Lenoir, or do you know Rick Rubin is down the street or. You know, what's so cool about I, I Daniel Lanois is, is somebody, you know, or uh, uh, Brian Eno, yeah, people like that. Joe Meek would be my hero. There's a guy named Joe Meek. He was famous for like rejecting the Beatles at an audition. He's like, oh, these guys will never make it. But he would <laughs> do crazy hero? stuff like be in his bathtub and stomping on floorboards to get a rhythm and oh, did a lot nice. of early electronic stuff. And he was just a real innovator. You know, Joe Meek, Phil Spector, that kind of yeah. stuff. Do you know Bill Laswell? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's I like what he does. Yeah. But the idea of being someone like Daniel Lenoir, who's a relatively successful musician, but, you know, not certainly not... Uh, like you too, right. but like getting together with you, with you too. too. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Getting together with you too and saying, Oh no, 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 no guys, it, that doesn't work. You know, here's right. what we need to do. Right. Having the balls to like stand up with a group of mega stars and right. say, you know, and command their respect and say, Hey, here's the sound we need in this. To me, that is so, so fucking cool. It's so funny. I have a friend who's work, who produced, did some production with U2, and he's in real life, he's a very shy, socially introverted person. He was telling me about his meeting with U2, and he was telling him exactly that. You got to do that wrong, and that hit was actually a piece of crap for these reasons. I'm like, how do you have the confidence to tell these guys things? But I think it's because they know, to go back to that, I love that 10,000 hours idea of Gladwell. Right. Like, when, when you know when you're right, you know, and everybody is looking for something, you know? I want to be a better writer. If someone can tell me flaws in my writing and may help me be a better writer. Right. I'll, you know, they're, they're my best friend. They have to know their shit and right. they demonstrate it, but yeah, right. you're right. And editor, that's why I said to you earlier, someone who tells you, Hey, that doesn't work. Right. And you respect them. That's, that's a diamond. Yeah, and, and, and they're, and they're right. You have the, you have the thought to, to see that they're right. And they right. are right. I think that's another credit thing when I'm looking for people to work with or, uh, or, or even kind of hired help out. Um, if someone can't admit when they're wrong, I right. feel like then they can't learn. Right. And they've got the balls to tell you when they think you're wrong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you have the uh, self-awareness and right. confidence to admit they're right. Right. And admit you're wrong. You're right. You're right. I'm wrong. <laughs> yes. Thanks a lot for doing this. I, right. I know you're very busy. It was fun. Let's get to the beach. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Why do you waste your time? 